Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chika Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview with Richard Parkinson, who is Professor of Egyptology at the University of Oxford, where he is a Fellow of the Queen's College. Hi, Richard. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. We're going to be discussing some of the texts that we've been looking at over the last few episodes, which we're claiming are philosophical works from ancient Egypt. Um, one of them is a text you've worked on quite a lot called The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant. Yes. And it's an example of what you've been known to describe as Egyptian poetry. And I was wondering whether you could just tell us something general about these works, for example, how it is that they have survived for such a long time so that we can read them today, and what kinds of themes they cover. Well, these sorts of texts are preserved on rolls of papyrus that are placed in tombs around 1850 BC. They're written in um, a phase of the Egyptian language called Middle Egyptian, and they seem to be associated with the court of the 12th dynasty in Egypt. They are found in the tombs of local officials, but it seems from literacy levels, from that sort of thing, that they probably originate within the sphere of the court, a read performed throughout the country. And they seem to be part of an official's sense of his own social status and cultural sort of display and prestige. Beyond that, we don't know much about who the authors were. We don't know much about who the audiences were. So a lot of how we approach them is deducing the context from what the texts say about themselves, which is, of course, incredibly risky. Um, But the view I take is that they're not as has sometimes been claimed, propaganda, political propaganda, but they are more reflective works of literature. And they would have been read out at court, with, with maybe it's with the accompaniment of music, is that possible? That is one possible scenario, and one that I believe is, is quite possible. They're certainly very dramatic works, and they are full of rhetorical poetic devices, imagery, assonance. And I think they are highly emotional and really very subjective in many ways. And that's why I quite like the term poetry as opposed to propaganda or philosophical text, something like that. They are they're very much concerned, it seems, with entertaining an audience, provoking them, shocking them, um, giving a sense of a very passionate sense of life. Does that give us an insight into the audience? Because it seems to me that if that's right, then the audience must be expected to identify with at least some of the characters. Yes, but which characters they identify with is yeah, not so, a simple matter. If it's being read out at court, it's hard to believe that they're supposed to identify with the eloquent peasant, because he's a peasant. He is a peasant. He is also addressing a fictional audience of courtiers and shouting, screaming abuse at them which is in itself quite an interesting reversal of roles. And I think anyone in the audience is invited to identify with the peasant. So that the engagement of the audience is not simple. It seems to be not conflicted, but certainly um, challenging and ironic and very dramatic in those sort of ways. So I think our response to them cannot be simple. And if we want to extract... um, 
a sort of cultural and intellectual message from them, it's remarkably difficult at times. You said we don't know much about the authors either, or maybe we don't know anything about them. We're just guessing. Uh, would you care to guess and speculate a bit? I mean, there is this uh, class of scribes, right? Yes. And we assume, I guess, that they come from this class, right? I think it's fairly certain, although they're designed for performance, they seem to be composed in writing. There are certain word plays that only work if you're literate and you know the script system. Oh, so um, you mean they wouldn't have originally been composed as oral works? I don't think so, no. I think oral. they are composed by the sort of people who would compose official documents and, say, monumental inscriptions. They are very close stylistically to those. The knowledge of court etiquette in some of them suggests people are really quite high up in court circles. There are lots of allusions to quite esoteric texts. So I think they are culturally central. It isn't... I don't think it's originating, say, in the so-called middle class of the scribal sub-elite. I think we're looking at court poets who are very close to the king and to the, the, sort of the central state libraries and the temple priesthoods. That and that would help explain why they survived, because they were written by very important people. They can only survive if they were sent out through the country. That could only happen, one assumes, for state-approved works. And do we have any idea why they would have been, um, I don't know what the right verb is, but interred <laughs> with the uh, body in the tombs? Absolutely not, no. Except you find in other tombs, say, um, staffs of office, um, things placed on the coffin intended to show the gender, the status, the prestige of a person. And it looks as if in the second half of the 12th dynasty, for some reason, literary texts became something you wanted to take with you. And sometimes administrative texts. And there, it looks as if they are bits of the professional life of the tomb owner. Oh, right, sorry, like take my tax documents with me to the... Academy. If I'm an accountant, yes, I, I take the, the full works with them. We have one example where we're pretty sure the named tomb owner is the person who wrote oh, that's uh, the texts placed on his coffin. And I think the literary texts have a similar, but a slightly broader okay. cultural role, though we can't prove... Um, we don't have the archaeological contexts of many of them. We do have fragmentary copies, though, from settlement sites. So they are certainly texts that are parts of the living world. They're not in any sense restricted to funerary Clearly, then we shouldn't be just assuming that they have some kind of religious significance that's eluding us. No, no, no. And and in contrast to that, actually, the first group of texts we talked about in the first episode we did on Egypt was the pyramid texts. Yes. And those are religious in nature. Those are highly religious, but like the literary texts, are also incredibly performative. And what do you think we can infer from the pyramid texts um, about the themes, perhaps, that are then captured also in these later poetic works? Would you see a connection between them? I think the main connection is almost formal. I think the funerary texts and the ritual texts are among the first texts to be written down of any length. And I think they provide a a practical model for the writing down of literary texts. I think in the age of the pyramid texts, there's every chance the sorts of texts that are later found in literary manuscripts 
existed in an oral form. And at a certain point in the 12th dynasty, it was decided that oral poetry should be transferred into the world of writing, presumably because it becomes elevated in status in court culture. And I think looking back to um, ritual texts, those would be an obvious model for the poets to follow if they wanted to write down narrative dialogue. There's certain ways of formatting the manuscripts that seem to look back to ritual texts as well. And do you see any philosophically relevant material in the pyramid texts, or do you think they're, as it were, just religious funerary works? They are religious and funerary works, but of course they are voicing concerns about kingship, about the state of the universe in a way to enable the rebirth, the continuation of the king's life. But I think they draw, they express most directly the ideas that we can detect the Egyptians had about the world, about ethical behavior. Hmm. And one of the central ideas that's come up a lot already is this notion of mat. Yes. And already we have problems about how to translate it. Uh, We could just sort of cheat and say mat and not translate it. And I've seen some translations Indeed, that do that. Yes. Um, and these come up in the tradition of instructions. Yes. So when, like, basically works of ethical advice, and they always say, make sure to observe mat, and you yes. will flourish if you do. Yes. You'll pay for it if you don't. Yes. Um, and so maybe first I should ask you what your preferred translation of it is or what you think speaks for and against certain translations. Mat can clearly mean truth. So if when people are failing to recognize somebody, they say, is that really him? Is that him in truth? Um, It has ethical overtones. To do truth is to do justice, to behave in a correct manner. It also has an almost cosmic sense of order. Ma'at is the ideal state of the world. It opposes chaos the legal system is what creates and upholds Ma'at. The king is the person who embodies Ma'at. Um, Ma'at is also mythologically the daughter of the sun god. She is part of the way in which the, the cosmos is created. So there are multiple possibilities of translating the word. And the only reason for translating it the same way, with the same word in a literary text, is just to show how important that single concept is. And in something like The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant, it's used in various ways, but the the main thing, the main literary effect, is this word keeps ringing out like a bell throughout the text. And it has ideas of reciprocity, of social engagement. If you are kind to people, that is my art you do something to them and so the like will be done to you. That is the principle of Mart. It's very much uh, a word that summarizes the whole of the Egyptian worldview in a sense. One of the things I find really fascinating about it is that it does have both this cosmic instantiation, yes. so the whole universe is somehow represents Maat because it was built that way by the gods but on the other hand we can express Maat in our everyday lives yes yes and is that should I understand that to mean that there's a causal influence there so is the reason why why I'll prosper if I exhibit Maat that I am living in a universe that 
is constructed along these principles? Yes, everything is bound together is um, one phrase that is used in the teaching for Medicare Ray. And Ma'at is presented as sort of a, an almost a law of nature, a law of the cosmos. Um, you cannot, you can create it, you can try to destroy it. But Ma'at is thought to be transcendent in the sense that it is embodied in a flawed way in the human social world, in the world after the gods have departed from the originally perfect world. And that frequently references the idea that now Ma'at dwells in a perfect state in the other world. And so it, it gains this eternal, otherworldly aspect. And the eloquent peasant, of course, plays with this idea of how imperfectly embodied Ma'at is in a corrupt society and how the official's duty is to try and be a perfect embodiment of these ideals. I think there's a very, very strong statement of the awareness that the present world is not ideal and the the ideals of truth and beauty and justice do exist but not not always in the society we see around us do these texts give us much help on the epistemological front so what i mean by that is for example if i want to know what ma'at consists in do they tell me how i could find that out or how i could know whether my assumptions about righteousness or justice or truth or whatever we want to translate it as how i would know that my assumptions were correct the texts that are called teachings seem to claim to do this. Um, I'm slightly sceptical that they are a handbook about my art, simply because I think it was such a fundamental aspect of social life that probably everybody absorbed it by other means. Um, one, one didn't have to say that kingship was a good thing in ancient Egypt because that just went without question. Yeah, try saying it's not a good thing and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <to> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or, or like somebody standing up now and saying, well, democracy is, is really completely lunacy. You know, it, it's, it goes without saying. Um, what the teachings do is provide instances of my art. But sometimes I think they're slightly ironic. Sometimes they, they, um, they read against the grain. I think one of the great teachings, the teaching of the vizier Tahotep, is ostensibly a text that is telling his son how to be wise, how to succeed in his career. And the opening maxim is, don't be proud because you are wise. Fine words can be found with the maids at the millstones. It's very rare, but you shouldn't assume that you, as a vizier's son, have an automatic right to it. And a lot of the vignettes that are then given as this is how you behave in these circumstances, envisage a whole range of social possibilities. So I think the teaching texts are slightly poetic meditations on education. They are not actually the handbooks on how to educate a vizier's son. And what do you see as the connection between those works of instruction or teaching and the tale of the eloquent peasant and other poetic works? I think the, the eloquent peasant and some of the, the dialogues, some of the narratives, include elements of wisdom literature, but often in quite a dramatic context and often in quite an ironic way. In the tale of Sinuhe, um, there's a wonderful eulogy of the reigning pharaoh, 
um, but it's actually put in the mouth of a fugitive who is acclaiming how wonderful the king is to a small Palestinian kinglet. And it is the most colossally tactless thing to do. <laughs> and he provides this huge, long, wonderful poetic eulogy, and the answer comes from the, the foreign uh, princeling, well, that's awfully nice, but you're here. <laughs> and I think with eloquent peasant, there is also this huge irony that the peasant is defining how the officials should behave, is producing wonderful eulogies of Marx, denunciations of social injustice. And the result is, he's speaking so perfectly, they continue to beat him. And they continue to beat him, so he continues to acclaim justice. And so the articulation of justice produces the exactly opposite result, that he continues to be oppressed until he gets to the point of suicide, and at that point, it's revealed they have been listening, and it's all all right. And that, I think, makes the social embodiment of justice incredibly problematic for the audience. And at the end, you're not quite sure whether it's all a joke or really quite painful, and who the peasant is the voice of truth, but he's not had an easy ride. Yeah, I can sort of picture the audience as being on the verge of tears by the it's, end. Because it's so agonizing that he, yes. he's, he's meriting better treatment and he gets, keeps, keeps getting such horrible... I mean, yes. he goes for justice and they do things to him that are even worse than yes. what happened to him in the first place. He gets beaten more yeah. than that, yes. And it's very passionate. And I think part of that is it engages the audience. It isn't a, an academic um, description of the principles of my art. It is somehow sucking the audience in, forcing them to feel it in all its forms. Would it be fair to say then that the, te- the works of instructions or teaching on the one hand and something like the tale of the open peasant on the other hand are two alternative ways to try to induce mods or a, a motivation to exemplify mod in the audience? Because one is very didactic, right? It says, do this. Here's how you should be. The other is... Let me tell you a story. Yes, I think so. I think, though, the teachings are also slightly framed. They're put in historical settings. Mm-hmm. They're given a slight narrative introduction. So I, I think they're slightly closer to the, to the peasant than is often assumed. There's also another genre, the, the lament, where Maat is shown by a description of the exact opposite, the chaotic state of the world and clearly in the 12th dynasty and and slightly later there was a taste for hearing somebody denounce the state of the world to to describe how ghastly and catastrophic society was and these are often assumed to be reflections on historical periods of chaos Uh, I would assume you only really can listen to that sort of poetry if you're sitting in a fairly safe and stable state Um, So I I think they are, again, dramatic literary presentations of a view of the world. All of the texts, I think, are fundamentally pessimistic. They all assume that society is tending to chaos. And sometimes you can do something to repel the chaos. In other texts, you fully face up to the possibility that that won't happen. 
I guess if you're trying to think of pessimistic or dark works from this period, one of the most obvious ones is the so-called dialogue between a man and his ba, yes. which seems to depict a suicidal person yes. talking to, I don't know what you think ba means. I mean, I guess it seemed to me that it might mean something like soul. It's something right? like soul. It's, um, it's an aspect of a person which becomes animate at the moment of death, it seems. And so the idea he is speaking to his soul is itself, I think, a literary fiction. Um, the man is apparently suicidal, and he does recite some descriptions of the state of the world which are very much like these full-scale literary laments. And what he and his soul are quarrelling about is whether it is a good thing to die. And the man is taking the view that death is the only escape from the horror of life and with a proper funeral everything will be fine and the soul very ironically is saying nope the only pleasure is here and now and if you renounce life that's it you'll never never come up again to see the sun and the reason it's ironic is that the ba is actually supposed to be your afterlife so it's like yes. his afterlife is saying to him you better enjoy it now and even more ironically of course this is one of the poems somebody placed in a tomb Oh, right. Along with the yeah. Elkin Peasant and the Tale of Sinuhe, it's a single, right. it's a single deposit. So it's it's incredibly complex dialogue, and the most awful thing for modern scholars is it doesn't come to a logical conclusion. I think somehow through the exchange of poetic imagery, the two speakers manage to reconcile themselves, and they agree that the soul will stay with the man who will look forward to death but not actively seek it. And it does reach an emotional resolution, but not a clear-cut, logical conclusion to an argument. And that fits with a lot of Egyptian attitudes to legal decisions, where the main aim is not that the, the righteous man will be vindicated, but the two complainants will leave the courtroom content. It's a very sort of social attitude to make sure there's reconciliation. I see. And that's what happens in this case. But it has some of the most transparent poetry that survives from this period in ancient Egypt, where the soul is, uh, sorry, where the man is comparing death to the smell of lotus flowers, to sitting under sail on a windy day. Um, it, it really can speak across the generations. And underlying it, of course, is the basic human fact that death is a very hard thing to come to terms with and to explain. And so the soul produces this vision of death as horror, saying how pyramids will collapse, offerings to the dead are useless, which, are, as Jan Asman has said, are the satanic verses of Egyptian literature. This is not what we imagine the ancient Egyptians to think or say, but clearly they they knew what death was as well as we do. Yeah, it's interesting that we started off with this very optimistic idea, where it sounded like a very optimistic idea that cosmic justice, or, or mod, yes. let's just say mod, and individual justice mirror each other, and that if you exemplify mod in your life, then yes. you'll do well. Yes. And then when we actually get into the texts, we have these very fraught situations which is not like the point of the text in each case is, oh, and the man was a good man, and so everything turned out for him right in the end. Yeah. It's more like every point of view is somehow justified. Yes. I think it's one of the 
peculiarities of this type of discourse in the Middle Kingdom is it expresses this subversive attitude. It doesn't say as monumental tomb inscriptions say, I was a good man, I had a great career. It produces more realistic visions of experience. And so the tale of Sinuhair, in a way, is a parody of a tomb inscription. It's about a real life, and like so many real lives, it goes horribly wrong. It turns out in the end, fine, um, but it still allows the audience to see that not everything is perfect. And I think, I think there's, it's hard to explain why the 12th dynasty should foster this sort of literature, but perhaps it's a safety valve. Perhaps if the state just keeps producing visions of the perfect world, um, nobody is going to quite believe anything it says anymore. <laughs> um, it's, I think similar, similar um, ideas have been advanced for the sort of the propaganda and subversion in Shakespeare's plays. And I think that's quite a useful parallel. It's a, a very tightly contained sort of discourse coming from court circles. There's a more general issue here, actually, about how to situate the texts in yes. their historical context. And we don't have very much in terms of text. I mean, I could, I was able to read it over a weekend. Indeed, much. yes. Um, I mean, not in the original. That would have taken me a lot longer, <laughs> since I would have had to learn to read Egyptian first. If you were fluent, it would it would go. It would take exactly. very little time for each one. They're not long. So, to what extent do things like our knowledge of burial practices, uh, architecture, the political situation at the time, to what extent can we use all of those to inform our readings of these? philosophical texts, if we are allowed to call them that. I think it's absolutely crucial. And there is no way you can read any work of literature completely abstracted from its social, historical context. We imagine we can do it with European literature and classical literature because it's very close to us and second nature. Egypt is that one step different. And I think it's very hard to get into the mindset of the texts without having a sense of the society, even the landscape that they inhabit. Certain assumptions are made, of course, and if you don't get that, you miss the point of the works. The Tale of Sinuhair has a lot about the relationship between the hero and the queen of the king under whom he serves. All modern commentators get awfully twitchy and really want that to have been an affair between Sinuhe and the Queen. It surfaces in all the modern retellings of the story. For the ancient Egyptians, it's completely unthinkable. The key relationship there is, is the male bond between the loyal courtier and the king he serves. And that, for them, is the obvious emotional focus of the story. We, from a different culture, miss it completely and can reinterpret and with everything talking about social ethics, I think there's this sense as well that without an awareness of the social structures, the supposed relationships between different members of society, you really can miss miss a lot of the vividness, a lot of the, the relevance of what is being said. Actually, there's something before we wrap up that I wanted to ask you about. This is maybe a little bit of a shift of topic, but I can't resist because you've worked on this quite a bit. And it is about social relationships yes. in ancient Egypt, and in particular, uh, sexuality and yes. relationship between the genders and so yes. on. 
what kinds of texts or other evidence can we draw on to learn about this, well, and what do we learn when we draw on them? Well, I, it's a very male, male-dominated society. I think that's very clear. There are certain ritual texts that talk about sort of that you, you shouldn't have sex with married women, a man shouldn't have sex with another man. Um, and again, literature subverts those social norms or explores the possibility that everything isn't quite as normative as it should be. And so we find possibly the first detective story in world literature is where um, a king is having an affair with his general, a long-standing affair, um, which in itself is historically very important for LGBTQ history. Um, But the affair has to be conducted at night. Um, so it's clearly disreputable. It has to be done by secrecy. He's followed through the streets and it is detected. We don't know what happens then because the ending is lost, but <laughs> we know it. And ironically, the first chat-up line in world literature seems to be between two male gods in ancient Egypt, where Seth says to Horus, what a lovely backside you have. And it's inspired by desire, not just by a desire for sexual domination. Um, So there's quite a few surprises, even in a court poetry produced by a very heteronormative, male-dominated court society. It still allows the voicing of realistic, subversive, I don't know what you call them, attitudes. And I think that's what I find so fascinating, fascinating about the poetic texts. Somehow, for some reason, there is a little bit of freedom which we would say addresses human reality in a way that the grander, funerary, religious texts don't allow themselves to. They state obsessively that the world is perfect, the king is triumphant. Occasionally, you find works that will address the fractures, the gaps in the record. Yeah, maybe that's actually why Chica and I respond to these works as if they were philosophical, because, I mean, obviously there's a big question here about are these philosophical works in any sense? And maybe I hadn't thought about this until we had this conversation, yeah. but it's possible that the reason why they might strike someone as philosophical is because they're maybe at one remove from the phenomenon they're describing. They are playing around yeah. ironically. They're allowing you to think more than one thing. about they are They are encouraging questioning thought, I think. In the same way, they've been often said to be political propaganda, which I I really doubt, but they are very politically engaged. For all the frivolity, for all the jokiness and the irony in them, they tackle key questions about life and morals and the state of society in a way that doesn't just provide the usual ideological answers. And I think they engage the audience and they ask the audience to examine their own hearts. And that is clearly one of the drives. And heart means, of course, mind, intellect, as well as emotions. It's very much a way of engaging the audience in a dialogue and not allowing them to escape with, a, with an easy answer. So I think in that sense, they're, they're profoundly philosophical. Okay, that seems like a good note to end on. So I'll thank Richard Parkinson very much for coming on. Next time we're going to be moving on to look at Ethiopian philosophy, so that'll be a big jump ahead chronologically. And please do join us for the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 